0: Good morning. morning. The sermon text from this morning is from Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14, and it can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 16. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood.
1: As always, I do encourage you to uh, have a copy of God's Word open, uh, page 16, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you in the seats there. It uh, helps you kind of track the story a little bit here. Um, so I was, well, I'll just say this, we're, we're continuing on in this series that we're doing this summer on the names of God in in the... Particularly in the Old Testament, we have many different names uh, that have been attributed to God. And one of the reasons why there are so many different names that are, are given is because he's, so, he's infinite. And trying to describe an infinite being takes multiple words, and, and even then we, we can't do it all. Uh, today's name is Jehovah. We talked a little bit about Jehovah a couple weeks ago. But Jehovah Jireh, okay, that's from the Hebrew word there, and it means this idea of the Lord will provide. Now, this text is a difficult text, okay? Um, this is one of those stories that the more you think about it, the more you think, that's in the Bible? <laughs> you know, really? Uh, why is that there? And, and you start wondering. Now, w- when I was younger, I think I just kind of cruised past a lot of this, and uh, even into my college years, I was traveling for uh, the school, and so we would do children's programs all summer long. We'd go to one church and do a week of children's program, then pack up and go to another church. We did this for two summers straight, and, and it was a lot of fun. I remember on the second team that I was on, I was the, the team leader, and so I was in charge of you know coaching the, the other team members and things, and I remember this story. Was, was taught in the, the children's program. And we're on the first week out, first time the guy's doing this on my team, and he, he brings up this, uh, this like, uh, I think he used, like, a, p- a piano bench or something like this, and then he calls a little kid up, lays a little kid down, and I'm like, I and mean, this is, like, kindergarten through sixth grade in this room, and I'm sitting on the front row, and then he pulls out a real knife, Kids started screaming, okay, you know, like, they're like, I'm not joking, like, hiding themselves under the seats and everything like this. I mean, it was terrifying. So I had the team debrief meeting afterwards. I was like, okay. (laughs) we have, we got to make some changes here. Okay. Either it's a real kid and a fake knife or it's a fake kid and a real knife. We can't have two real things here. Okay. (laughs) Telling this story here, we are going to traumatize these, these kids, right? You know, as we look at this, though, I mean, I think in the past we look at this and it's kind of like a, a stoic reading of it. I remember first being taught this as a little boy in church. You know, remember the days of flannel graph? You know, I remember those, okay? And, you know, so you know, you'd put, you know, here's Abraham. Well, isn't that Moses? Well, he's Abraham this week, okay? And so, you know, you put it up there. And so, you know, and it's like telling the story, you know, of this and it's like, oh, okay, you know, it's fine. As I've gotten older, I've struggled more and more with the story. This has become very difficult to me and, and even emotional at times. I mean, probably because I'm a dad now, right? You know, so you kind of see things a little bit different. And, and that, although you don't have to have children to, to get the, the pathos of this. But, but the point is, is that this is a challenging, challenging text, a challenging story here. And so I make no bones about that. But I do think it's in the Scriptures for a reason. In fact, I know it's in the Scriptures for a reason. And I hope at the end of our time together here today, I hope that you have a better understanding of that, and we have a better understanding of our God, and a better understanding of what's going on in this story here, okay? So before I dive in, um, I'm just going to pause and ask God's blessing, but ask God's enablement as I try to teach you this, okay? So I encourage you to pray for me as, as, as I pray uh, uh, for us together. Father, I want to pause now because I'm about ready to teach from your word, and this is your word. This is my word. I I want to do justice to what what you have here, and I I, I don't pretend to be all-knowing. Only you are all-knowing. But I do believe that we can get a good sense of what this text is about here, and so as I have this privilege to stand in front of these people, God, I I, I pray that I I would teach in a way that's helpful and that's guided by your spirit, but is accurate to the text here, God. Um, and we just pray that at the end of this time, we have a better view of who you are, and uh, that you receive glory and honor. And so the only way for that to happen is by your spirit to enable us. And so enable us to listen well, enable me to communicate in a way that's helpful. And so we depend on you now, we pray for, for your enablement. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So as we're going to walk through this, uh, there's, there's a couple main points and then there's a third point at the end that we're going to kind of summarize and try to make some sense of this, okay? So the first point is this, is that this idea of that there is a devastating test that's going on here. This is absolutely devastating to Abraham and it's easy kind of to when you read through this to think that maybe Abraham responded stoically to this, but I, I can't imagine that that's the case. I mean the way that it is described in verse two. It says, "Take your son, your only son, the son whom you love." I mean, there is deep emotion there. There is there is a there's a there's a a, a pinnacle of of passion here that is in this text here, and and this is a a devastating te- test here when it says that here I want you to go offer him. Now you got to remember in. the because of sin, and, and remember in uh, in the Garden of Eden, we had Adam and Eve, they were, they were told to eat of anything, and they could have really freedom, except for one thing, they said, God said, just don't eat of this tree. And so he had to set some boundaries up, and so he did. And of course, you know the story. Adam and Eve, they ate of that, that, and, and what happened is, is that brought sin into the world. Romans chapter 5 teaches uh, that. It says, death came into the world for by one man's sin, sin entered into the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men for all have sinned because God had told Adam and Eve he had said in the day that you eat of it you will surely die and so this idea this was what was told that when sin it causes such a a problem and it's it's so terrible that it brings it brought in death into the world and so this, this is what happened here and so in order to deal with this, God, he had planned. He said that I'm going to send a redeemer. And so they're waiting for that redeemer to come. But in the meantime, during this time, he says there's going to have to be sacrifices that are made. And so there was these sacrifices of the sheep and things like that that would, that would temporarily cover sin until they had to do it again. And so this was one of these things. This was the, the, the way that God was teaching the people at that time. This is how bad sin is. This is really how bad it is because you see, the problem is if we didn't have that, we wouldn't think our sin is very bad at all. And so, this is the reason why God's doing this. He's saying, You, you understand how bad this is. And so, we have this sacrificial system. It's bloody, it's, it's awful. I'm glad we don't live in that time. But here, we have this, this request that God tells Abraham, He says, Okay, I'll offer Isaac. Now, if you know anything about the story, you know that this has been a, a, a long journey to even get Isaac. Years and years of barrenness, years and years of disappointment, and the whole story of Hagar and Ishmael. We talked about that with El Roi, the God who sees, and all this stuff, all these things that had happened here. And now, God's saying, "Offer, offer Isaac." And so the question that, that just comes in my mind is, how could God ask this of him? How could he do this? Hey, have you ever wondered something like this? And again, you know, sometimes we're not. I mean, we feel like as Christians we're not supposed to ask these questions. Ask these questions. Wrestle with God can handle your questions. In fact, if you're not asking questions about God, if you're not asking questions about faith, then you're not growing. So I ask these questions. So as I sit here and I think, how in the world could God ask this of Abraham? And so some of the ways, and again, I don't pretend that all these answers I'm going to give are going to completely satisfy all the tension in the text. But what I do think is going to happen is that we get a better understanding of, okay, this is what's happening. Because what we need to do in interpreting the Bible is we have to kind of leave 2023. We've got to go back in time and say, okay, what was going on then? What did they understand? What did Adam, uh, uh, Abraham understand? Because Abraham, when he heard this command, he heard something totally different than what you and I would have heard. Okay, just by the the culture, by what was going on, um, and so let me unpack that a little bit for you. First of all, in the scriptures, it's, it's a theme. We're going to see this is going to be codified in the next book of the Bible in Exodus. But the theme is all in the beginning of that all firstborns belong to God, the first fruits, first fruits of everything belong to God. Okay, and so that was a sign that God had given this, and so it was his, and he's showing his mercy and grace, and so all firstborns belong to God. And so this was probably in some ways a way of pushing against common culture of the day because all ancient civilizations during this time, they had what was called the law of primogeniture. Okay, the law of primogeniture. What that means is, is that the firstborn sons get everything, okay? That's the law of primogeniture. So when it came time to pass on the inheritance, the firstborn got everything, okay? Now you think, man, that's unfair. I, I mean, I used to hear about that as a kid, and I, I'm secondborn, okay? I used to think, I am so much better than my brother, Okay, you know why in the world would he get everything, right? You know I didn't struggle at all with pride when I was a child, but but the point is, is that you know it's like this is what. But why did they do this? Well, here's the reason why. It wasn't just because it was trying to make you know uh, sibling rivalries or anything like that. The reason why is because most of these families, if they built wealth or they had any type of things to pass on, it was based on land. It was based on the size of of the property. and their possessions in terms of livestock and things like this. Back in the day when these people were having, it wasn't uncommon to have 12, you know, children or more. You divide all that up by 12 children, your, your family clan, your family uh, power or structure diminishes and goes down. You divide it by 12. But if you give it all to the firstborn, and then the firstborn is then in, in tasked with caring for the rest of the family, and other cultures in the world today still have this primarily, you, you see, okay, they're protecting the family by having this, okay? They're protecting the family's legacy. They're protecting the family tree, the family uh, 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 you know, uh, name, if you will, by doing it this way okay? God here, he's doing this different. And all throughout, particularly in the the Pentateuch, and you'll see this in the the Old Testament, you'll see that God often pushes against us where he chooses the younger over the older, okay? I won't take time to unpack all that, but that's a theme that we see. And I think that what God is doing here is he's saying, hey, listen, Your hope, right, okay, is not in the firstborn. Your hope is in me. The firstborn belongs. So how could he ask this to Abraham? Because all firstborns belong to God anyway. And it's obvious in the text the reason why that God asked this. It's obvious here that God never intended for Abraham to actually kill Isaac. That was never the actual plan. It was a test for Abraham. You say, it's kind of a cruel test. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. But the point is, is that at least God never, it wasn't like God had a change of mind here. I mean, right in the beginning, it says, and God tested, verse 1, Abraham. And then, of course, we see the intervention with the angel here later on in the story. So God never intended for this to happen, intended for Abraham to actually go through this. So this is how he could ask him of that. All right, I need to move on. So that brings up another question then. The other question is this. Okay, what exactly was God asking of Abraham? What was he actually asking him to do? Now, again, remember I told you you have to leave 2023 and kind of go back into this time period to f- figure out some of these things and understand it. We've done that a little bit with the law of primogeniture, but here we need to do it a little bit more to have a, have a better understanding of what's happening here. Um, remember, we live in individual societies. Everything's about the person, about my name, about what's benefiting me. Uh, That's the society we live in. It's not healthy, but that's the reality in which we live in. Abraham did not live in that society at all, okay? It was all about uh, the legacy of the family. It was all about the nation. It was all about the name. It was not primarily about the individual. And so when God was pressing Abraham here and testing him, it wasn't about his individual Wants and desires. It was about what would come afterwards here. Because you'll remember in the story: Isaac was the promised one. All the world will be blessed through Abraham. God would make Abraham nations great, right? Remember this? And this was the, the the tension all along. He had promised that they didn't have children. And then so Abraham said, well, maybe it's going, to be, it's, it's going to be a servant person that's going to produce this. The guy says, nope, it's going to be your offspring. It's not going to be anyone else. It's going to be your offspring that's going to do this. And we have all this tension that's going through this. And so we get to this point here. Well, now he's got Isaac. And we don't know how old Isaac is. Um, you know, it's different you know, scholars, they, they range from whether he was a teenager or, you know, maybe he was I, the oldest I saw. One person say he was like 37 years old. That was a, 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 a a Jewish commentator, but I, I don't think he was that old, but uh, he was old enough to carry wood. We know that, and so he was strong. Here we have this, and God's saying, okay, offer him up. What was he asking us? He was essentially what God was testing Abraham was to say, are you willing to give up the promise? Are you willing to give up all those blessings that I told you you would get And another way of putting this, God's saying, am I enough? Am I enough for you? If if I didn't give you all of these things, would you still be okay? Are you willing to give up all that promised blessing that's only going to come through Isaac? And Abraham knew that this was only going to come through Isaac. He says, are you willing to give that up? Now, needless to say... This is very confusing for Abraham because the command that he had just received from God seems to contradict the promise that he received from God. I have never told you that following God is easy. Okay? There's times where I'm not gonna lie, it is confusing. But this is how this text is going to help us today. That even in those moments, God has. Even in those moments where it seems that, okay, the command is, is contradicting the promise. What do I do with this? God has provided. Jehovah Jireh. That's the point of this text okay? So the question is, is that we're going to try to make some application to ourselves in this. The question is, is God enough? I mean, or we can put phrase in this way. If you're following God, if you're following Jesus Christ, the question I want to ask is Why? Why are you following Christ? Is it because of the promises that you're hoping he cashes in on, that you're able to cash in on? And again, that's not necessarily bad, okay, because in the sense of that, so don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's wrong to want forgiveness of sins. I'm not saying it's wrong to want eternal life. Again, no, that's our hope, right, okay? So I'm not trying to say that's bad. But what I'm saying is if that's the only thing that's causing me to follow Jesus, then Jesus isn't enough. Then God isn't enough. And what what the pressure of this text, the story of this the, the point of the story is is God enough for you? Does he satisfy? We just sang a song. It was a few songs back. Um, I can't remember which one it was. I meant to write it down. But it talks about that we'll be satisfied in him alone. I will glory my Redeemer. That's the song. I will glory my Redeemer. And it, there's a line that says, "In Him I'm satisfied in him alone. I think the, the line is there. And I thought about this. As we sang that, I thought about this. Is that true? Is that true? Is that true for me? Okay, I tell you, I preach sermons I need to hear, okay? As I thought, is that true that I'm satisfied in him alone? Is that true for you? Are you satisfied in God alone? Or are we constantly looking for other things? And I, I, I get so discouraged sometimes in my own self of like how I get distracted from things. And it's like, oh, I want this or I want that. Or, or people's opinion or, or whatever the case may be. No. What, what, what Abraham's test here was is, am I enough? Am I enough? Is, is the relationship with the God of the universe enough for you to say, okay, you have everything. I'm willing to give up everything. Even if I don't have all these wonderful promises and in the adult discipleship hour, Wayne mentioned a couple times, you know, the prosperity gospel and how there's really no gospel at all of how this idea of like, well, if you follow God, then he will give you all the desires of your heart in the sense of, you know, you will get wealthy, you will have prosperity and things like that. That's why it's called the prosperity gospel. That's just wrong. The Bible never, ever teaches it. In fact, if you look at the scriptures, you see that a lot of times we actually lose things. Because all those things, those wealth and all that stuff, that pales in comparison to God. We've got to believe that. And so this is what's going on here. Is God enough? And, 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 and let me make this point before I move on to the second point. I am watching the time. and I know we have a picnic. But, you know, all bets are off when I start. So the point is, is that um, um, sometimes the way God deals with us Let me just tell you this as a Christian, okay? If you haven't experienced this already, you're going to, okay? Sometimes it will feel like your Savior is actually trying to kill you because of what he's putting you through. You think, I don't know if I want to sign up for a God like that. But here's the point, is that it's always for our good. It's always for what is right. Uh, uh, um, When I was preparing to, I had the the privilege of of leading the funeral for Tom Vaughn's mom. In her her favorite psalm, was Psalm 23. And so, in preparation for that funeral, I read through a book uh, Philip Keller wrote called "A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23." And so, there's a there's a man who um, uh, it's it's a it's an older book, but he he spent years as a shepherd uh, in uh, in more of a Middle Eastern context. And then he became a pastor, and so he was using his experience as a shepherd to then make parallels to the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, Psalm 23. Fascinating little booklet. You know, if, you've, if you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so. It's, this is a fascinating little booklet. Um, but anyway, um, he tells stories in there of how the shepherd has to care for the sheep. And one of the things that the sheep that always, they always get like these, these, Bugs and things like this and, and the parasites and stuff, they get them in their ears and their nose and they get them all over the place. And then if the shepherd doesn't intervene, if the shepherd doesn't try to care for the sheep in, in those things, the sheep is going to die. Okay, and so one of the things that they do is that they have to rub all these antiseptics and things all over and stuff like this. And then there's times where they just like dunk them in this stuff, right? Because it's got to get everywhere. Now, do you think in those moments that sheep is saying, I am grateful for a loving shepherd? Bah! <laughs> no, that's not what the sheep is doing. It's thrashing around. Or have you ever like tried to help an animal that maybe was caught in something or something like that? Are you, and you're like, okay, I am here to help you. And that's the last thing that they think you're doing. They think you're trying to kill them, and they're snarling at you and all sorts of things like this, you know. Or you know, I mean, you know, sometimes maybe giving children medicine. And, you know, trying to get them to take their medicine. Like, this is going to help you. And it's like, Dad, why do you hate me? <laughs> why? And it's like, no, I'm trying to help you here. You see, so many times the ones when we're trying to show love and trying to help someone, it's actually interpreted as you're trying to harm. Here's a scenario here. What, what God is doing for Abraham, it seems ruthless. It seems heartless. It seems terrible. I will be the first to admit that. But what God was doing with Abraham here is he was showing him, I am enough. Jehovah Jireh, the rest of your life, you can depend on me. I will always provide, okay? You can depend on me. I am enough. And when you have that reality, your life will be so much freer if you believe God is going to provide. I'm going to get to that in a few minutes here about how freer our life will actually be. So here's this devastating test. Let me move on to a driving faith here, okay? So let's talk a little bit about Abraham here and his driving faith here, all right? Um, You know, true faith drives us to obedience. One of the things that the most remarkable, one of the most remarkable parts of the story here, I actually find, uh, where's it at? Um, in, uh, where is it at? Oh, in verse 3. So after he gets the command, it says, so Abraham rose early in the morning. If there was ever a day to sleep in, that was the day. If there was ever a day to put off and procrastinate that day's assignment, this was the day. He rose up early and started on that walk. Three-day journey. Can you imagine this internal conflict for three days Abraham had? I, I, I just can't even begin to fathom it. We know that Isaac didn't know anything about it because later on he's going to ask. He's going to say, well, okay, here's wood, here's fire, okay. Where's the lamb? So we know that Isaac isn't clued in on this at all. So for three days, dad is walking side by side with his son walking up a mountain, walking to the mountains, and then he eventually walks up the mountain. And he has this in his heart. He knows what he's been asked to do. and He obeys. See, true faith pushes us to obey. I can't imagine what Abraham was going through. In fact, this, as I was going through this, I, I, you know, studying for this, this question kept in my mind. like, how could Abraham climb that mountain? How could he go up there? How could he go up knowing, okay, this is what's going to happen? And so the text tells us that they get to the base of the mountains of Moriah there. And so he leaves the servants who are helping him with the things. And he says, the boy and I are going to go. We're going to come back. And he says, how in the world, I think to myself, how in the world could he have done that? Well, the answer is in verse 8 when Abraham says God will provide for himself a lamb. Abraham knew that somehow, some way, God will provide. Some translations, you might have a little footnote, and in, in, if you have a Bible, with so some markings. And it, you might have a footnote that says something to the effect that God sees or something. This is different than El Royi, but it's this idea, this gyro word can also have the idea of seeing, but in the sense of that he will see to it, okay? So in the sense is that, God will provide. He will see the need. He will see to it and he will provide the need. He will make sure that need is met here. You see, Abraham believed that God could see what he could not. He, he believed that God had something and, and he was not really sure what that would be. Now, there's, there's good indication here that Abraham thought that he was going to have to go through with this, but he, he was leaning on the fact that God could even raise the dead if possible. In verse five, he says this, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He's saying that both we, this is plural, we're gonna go and worship and we're gonna come back. We know that he believed in a resurrection because of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 says, it says this about faith. when he, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, show your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So we know that this is what was driving Abraham. This is how he could go up to the mountain. Is because he knew that God would provide in some way, even if that meant resurrecting Isaiah, uh, 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 Isaac. In some way, he said that God is going to provide in this. And he believed that God would provide he believed that in God, that, that he was, that having God and, and, and obeying God was the most important thing. Because he says that offering, this is Hebrews again, offering up who had received the promises that was in the act of his only son, of whom it was said. Through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. There's the promise. He said, I don't know how God's going to do this. He may even have to raise him from the dead. But how God is going to do this, he is going to keep his promise. So this command seems confusing, but I know the promise is going to be fulfilled. This is how he was able to walk up the mountain. And it wasn't so much about his strength. It wasn't so much about him saying, okay, I'm going to do this. It was about, it was about God. The whole focus of this text is about God providing. God providing. God providing. And so how could he climb that mountain? It's because of the name that we're studying today, Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. He knew that in God, it was enough. And he would provide what he needed. So, let's make some sense of this. Let me try to, okay? What's going on here? I've tried to give you a sense of it already. But now I'm trying to drive it to why this matters to us today in 2023, okay? Um... This story, first of all, clearly points to Jesus. Clearly. Um, one of the things that I, I love about the nuances of the text here, in verse 6, this is Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Isaac had to carry the wood up the mountain where he was going to be sacrificed. Does that remind you of Jesus carrying his cross right? Wood was laid on his back as well. I mean, clearly this is an allusion to what Jesus endured and what Jesus did on our account. Another thing about Isaac that I really appreciate about this is his willingness. And that points us to Jesus as well. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't God foreseeing Jesus to do something he didn't want to do. It's very clear in the Bible that Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. And so he laid down his life for us. He was willing to do this. We see that same willingness in Isaac by the silence there. We have no record here of him struggling against his father. And if he was strong enough to carry wood up the, cro- up the mountain, don't you think he was strong enough to resist his dad? But we have no record of this. He heard his dad say, God will provide I, I can't imagine. I just cannot imagine this scenario. This is one of the most difficult t- stories for me to wrap my head around. And I'm very transparent about this. But when I take a step back and look at what God's communicating here about how he's enough. And how that he will always provide. And how that God never f- intended for Abraham truly to kill his son. But it was just this test of, of is God enough? It makes more sense to me. Also this idea of these mountains here of Moriah. In Second Chronicles chapter 3 we find out that this is the location it's in the mountains of Moriah that David commissions the Temple Mount to be built. Okay, this is this is this is where in you know Calvary is in the mountains of Moriah here. So where where to Golgotha, where Jesus would later on be crucified, it was in this area here, in this spot here. So clearly, this points to Jesus. So then, obviously, the substitutionary atonement of how that someone went into it, it, it took the place and so at the last second we had a ram being offered in place of isaac here and so there was a substitute that was offered this story here tells us that jesus was offered for us and, and on our account and, and and he was he was our substitute here it's a beautiful story in that sense very difficult story I mean, in the emotional sense but don't you think that that's part of the reason Don't you think that's part of the reason? Is that we we, we learn these stories about Jesus. We learn these stories about him dying for us. But then we just act like it's nothing. He died for you. You. He died for you. Man, I, I, I hope I never get over that. I hope I never get over that. This story clearly points to Jesus. But also... And in the emotional sense, this gives us a human understanding of what God did for us. God, he gave up his son. He, he, you know, we, we have such a hard time relating to God because he's infinite and, and we don't see him and all this stuff. And everything. This story is here. So you have an understanding of what God did for you. We, we, we look at, we're identifying with Abraham in the story and we're thinking, I don't know how in the world he could do this. This is... This is this is gut-wrenching. This is this is terrible. This is how in the world could he do this? There's no way his hand was not just trembling when he picked up that knife. But God, he sacrificed his son. So we could have forgiveness of sins because that was the only way. There was no other way. And everyone here is a sinner. Me, it doesn't matter if you've been in church for 50 years, 100 years, or whatever, we're all sinners that need Jesus to save us. And the Bible says that there's only one way to have forgiveness. And this is what Jesus did on the cross. This is why it's so important, right? This is not just a story that's like, okay, Christians kind of believe this weird thing about this guy hanging on the cross. It's a little gory. You know, it's kind of weird. No, this is foundational. Because our sin debt was so great that we could never pay it. But Jesus stepped in after living a life of perfect obedience that we could never do. He stepped in and he says, "Okay, I'll die. Let me die." And the Father watched his son die. In fact, the Father had to turn his back on him. When Jesus cried on the cross, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani," which is translated, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" What did God say in response? Nothing. You know, this story gives us a sense, just a little sense of what God endured and what Jesus endured. And if that doesn't cause us to rejoice, if that doesn't cause us to be in awe of God and worship him, I don't know what, heck, what can you see, this is the reason why the story here, I believe, is as it gives us this. And how I believe that is because Romans chapter 8 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul leans on this story here to talk about how Gee, God, he was not willing to, he, he, he did not withhold anything. And so when we're wondering, does God have our best interest in mind? We go to this story, which then points us to the cross. and says, if God's done this, then, then of course he's got what's best in mind. Yes, the command of the day may seem to contradict the promise. It may be confusing what he's telling you to do or the circumstances that you find yourself in. It may seem like, I don't know what is going on here. But it's this story here, which points us to the, the emotional connection, which points us to what Jesus did on the cross. It says, if if God gave up his, his son, surely whatever you're going through right now, is not worse than that. Surely whatever you're going through right now, it means that God has the best intentions. If he was willing to kill his son so you could have eternal life, Do you think he's going to slack off on your job? Do you think he's going to slack off on your relationships? Do you think he's going to slack off when you don't get the credit that you think you deserve? Do you think that that's the point here? He says, no, if I'm not giving you something that's for your good, I've already given you my son, what more can I give? I'm not going to withhold anything. Some of you may be struggling with the question, is God good? Yes. I think that this helps us with that. I've always said that in order to get through life, there's two things, and you, you guys probably know what I've been saying it for 10 years here now, the two things to believe about God, that he's good and he's all-powerful. And it has to be both, because if he was all-powerful but not good, he would use his power against us. But if he was all-good but not all-powerful, he could really wish the best for us but have no power to make it happen. But the good news is God is all-good and all-powerful. And here we see it here. He is all-good and all-powerful. Finally, this story assures us that God provides. This assures us that God provides. Jehovah Jireh, he will provide. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of the place. The Lord will provide. So the point is this. I want us to walk away and say, God's enough. And, and, and I struggle with this in my own life. I mean, there's times where God is, just seems to be he's enough more than anything. And it seems like 10 minutes later, he's not enough anymore. Anyone else there with me? Okay, God is enough. Let's believe that. You see, if we believe that God provides what we need, if we truly believed in Jehovah Jireh, here's where I think it's going to have a tremendous impact on us. Why in the world would we get angry if we believe that God would provide? Why do we get angry? It's because we feel like we're not getting what we want or what we deserve in that moment. But if we say, but God provides everything that's good, and God provides everything that I need, why do I need to get angry about this situation? If I truly believe that God is is Jehovah Jireh and he provides all things, would I really have this burning passion or would I really have this need to be in control, this obsessive passion to be in control? If I said, well, God's going to provide. I don't have to be in control anymore. This doesn't mean we don't make decisions, of course. This doesn't mean we don't obey, of course. That's not the point. But the point is I say, listen, much of life is spent with dealing with situations that are outside of your control. Instead of letting that defeat you, we say, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. He will provide what needs to be done. Would we have a desire for what God has specifically forbidden? If he says got to provide, the good things. When we want something that God has forbidden, what we're saying is that you haven't provided enough. You haven't provided what is right for me. I know what's right. But if we believe in Jehovah Jireh, I don't need to desire where God is forbidden. Why would we get devastated when we're rejected? Because God is enough. Why would we be crushed when we don't get the promotion, that relationship or the recognition that we think we deserve? Jehovah Jireh. If I didn't get what I think I deserve, well, oh God... He will provide in due time what is right and what is best. Why would we spiral when someone or something is taken out of our lives? God will provide. So this test for Abraham is the test for us. Is God enough? And Jesus, and again, I'm not going to take time to turn there, but just keep in mind for the, the, to show the consistency. You remember the rich young ruler? Jesus put him to the same test. He says, go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and then come back. And he went away sorrowful for he had much possessions. Why did Jesus do that? Because you have to sell everything? No, it's because he was getting at the heart with this returning ruler. Just like Abraham was, what God was getting at the heart of Abraham is am I enough? Am I enough? So what do we do? Well, if I think some of us, we, we repent to God, ask him to forgive us for placing things or people ahead of him. I think then we ask God to help him, uh, help us see him as enough, and that the only path to true joy is Jehovah Jireh. I, I can just be free if I believe that God provides. And when tempted to despair, we worship. That God who provides, he, even, he provides even when we can't see it here.